I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And this week on the podcast, an hour with a man who's created fabulous music with Mr. Weller and was part of his band for longer than the jam had a record deal. I'm chatting with the magnificent Andy Lewis, musician, Producer, DJ, radio presenter, heck, is there anything this man can't do? We talk acid jazz records, Britpop super club blow up, meeting Paul to create the wonderful single Are You Trying to Be Lonely, to joining the band in the late noughties for 22 Dreams, Wake Up the Nation and Sonic Kicks, and touring the world as part of the Paul Weller Band. Let's get into it. An hour with Andy Lewis. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really excited about this because um, the period that you worked with Paul is a real kind of golden period, and we'll kind of get into that in a sec. But let's step back first of all. When was it you, that you first discovered Paul's music, and and what kind of impact did it have on you at the time? Well, I think it was probably you know like like a lot of us. I, I was uh, I, I began my childhood at an early age, and um, it was towards the the end of the first part of my childhood. I suppose when when you're sort of nine and ten, you first become aware of of the what's going on in pop culture and I was dead lucky to be sort of 9, 10, 11 during what I consider and what a lot of people consider to be the absolutely sort of high watermark of pop music as a cultural force in Britain so basically it's roughly between the middle of 1979 and I suppose the beginning of 1982 I was born in 1970 so I kind of grew up surrounded by the stuff that was going on then and then kind of really it all came into focus I suppose in my my last year at primary school and my first year at secondary school where you, you, you suddenly find yourself exposed to all kinds of things and all kinds of people and um, I'd already heard songs by The Jam, I'd already heard songs by Dex's Midnight Runners and Elvis Costello and The Specials and Madness and all that kind of thing and I, I quite liked it but the real turning point was when I went to secondary school and um, a, a mate of mine at secondary school had an older brother who was properly into the mod thing, he was a proper 79 revivalist He was, I suppose he was, he was just about in 1981 old enough to ride a, a 49cc Vespa. So he, as far as I was concerned, he was the ace face. You know, he, he had wheels <laughs> and he could make deals. <laughs> he was a um, god. <laughs> he, well, he was a little bit, but his, older, his, his, his younger brother was a, a really good mate of mine. And we kind of bonded over a sort of love of, you know, again, around the same sort of time, I'd inherited a record player from my dad and found a load of old 60s singles in a jumble sale to give myself some content. You know, I think it sort of paid sort of 50p for like, an armful of old 
60 singles and it was and it was great because you, you, you had the Beatles and you had some Motown and you know th- things like that in there but you also had all these sort of bands with weird and unusual names like The Kinks and Manfred Mann and all, all this stuff which I you know when, you, when you're that age you've got no idea really and then you know there was a lot more old pop music on the radio in those days because the 60s were only like 10 years away it was a combination of meeting this guy who had this older brother who was really into the mod thing and um, we we basically um, went round to my mate's house uh, at lunchtime and after school and raided his record collection, I suppose, for want of a better word. And uh, my mate did me a tape of stuff that he'd taped off his brother. So one side of the tape was was all mod cons by the jam and the other side was um, sort of Motown 20 mod classics or whatever it was called. It was a, a really lovely um, introduction and sort of consolidation of, of things that I was already starting to feel that I liked and enjoyed. And it was a bit annoying because as soon as you're sort of just about old enough to start thinking about going to gigs when you're sort of 12 and you, you, you think there's going to be some people you can go with who are a bit older who will look after you and take you under the wing of course the jam split up I never got to see them live but but I knew people who'd been to see them live and as, as far as I was concerned that was, that was as good as it was going to get for me I thought oh well there we are but I've still got the records and I've still got this fantastic legacy of things that because Paul Weller and the jam I suppose had this sort of attitude that it wasn't about living in the past but it was kind of building on the foundations of it so with the inner sleeve of all mod cons with all those sort of things that became a little bit of a guidebook for you to sort of look look for look records and anything like that really with interviews where he started name checking bands like the zombies or the action or whatever i mean i suppose it's because of that that i, I started digging even deeper into old, old 60s freak beat and soul and you know, obscure um, psychedelia. And of course, as his career develops, he sort of took me on this musical journey with him because, of course, you didn't have long to wait, did you? I mean, 1982, you know, between sort of like Beat Surrender being kicked off the top spot by Save Your Love by Rene and Renato and the release of Speak Like a Child. It's 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 not all that long, is it? It's only a few months. No, no. It felt yeah, like yeah, forever. Yeah. Then when Speak yeah. Like a Child came out, it's like, oh, right, okay, this is cool. This is a nice thing. And of course, at the time, being a kid, you didn't have an awful lot of money. So um, I had to wait until it was in the 49p in Woolworth's bargain bid where you could sort of buy X chart singles for, for less money. And that's when I discovered Party Chambers on the flip. And I thought, and from that moment on, I thought, yes, this is this is brilliant. This is going to be fun. I'm sticking with Paul Weller. It's going to be all right. The B side is something um, that we've kind of lost, and I think there was that, that was something really lovely as well because you would probably know you'd know the jam songs from the radio, but actually discovering the single, you flip it over, or any any band actually, not just the jam, but you flip it over, and suddenly there's this this track that probably you've never heard before and has never been played on the radio. And there were so many great B sides from the jam and from the Style Council actually, weren't there? And so many singles that weren't on albums. This is the other thing that, you know, that, that that period of music was, was, it was a time when the single was still king. You know, it was, that was the thing that was the most important thing, being on top of the pops, you know, getting into the top 40, getting into the top 10, getting to number one. They, these were real achievements. And the music industry was absolutely awash with cash at that point in time. It was, it was, a, it was, it was trebles all round in the boardrooms of labels like Polydor and, yeah, or whatever. I mean, it was it was an absolute boom time. It meant that there was money to sling at what I suppose you'd now think of as, as vanity projects, but that the idea that the jam would hold up the release of a single because um, they wanted to mix the B-side properly, you know, that's that's something that's just unthinkable now, where there was a sort of genuine desire to be as creative and as innovative as possible. And so within the jam's relatively short career, there's a thing that Pete Perfides talks about, mortality mathematics, where, you know, it's it's kind of like your 10 years ago, this was happening, and 10 years before that, it was, the, I don't know, the siege of Mafeking or whatever, I don't know, but you, you have this kind of idea that periods of time actually feel like a long time, but they're not. When I discovered that I'd been in Paul Weller's band for longer than the jam had had a record deal, it kind of threw an awful lot into sharp relief, like just exactly how creative and how sort of exciting that period was, you know, because it wasn't just the jam doing it, but every band felt like they had to sort of compete on novelty or innovation or quality or whatever it was. And so you had wonderful records, you know, and obviously the jam were kind of at the forefront of this but you know Madness were brilliant singles band the specials Dexes you know Elvis Costello everybody they were all bringing out singles that weren't 
necessarily going to be on albums so we're just kind of things that were happening you know so at that point music kind of um, plays a big part in your life and i'm going to fast forward to Britpop because this sounds like such an exciting part of well not just your life all of our lives and and this kind of club that you were part of or or a dj night blow up i mean melody maker called it because the kind of club that changed the world and that must have been such an exciting time to be part of that kind of that club night in um in camden i think it was at the start all those moved around since the laurel tree um but you were part of that and then you you were kind of part of um, the Blur Park Life tour DJing as well. So take us through well, that kind of Britpop period. It's kind of really weird because um, I think you have to sort of like rewind just a little bit because um, I, at the end of the 80s, I went to university and I think I, I, I think I lucked out really because being at university between sort of 1988 and 1991, again, there's another great year for music that's coming through. You know, you've got the whole Manchester thing crossing over, but you've also got um, some amazing hit hop being made it's also a really good time for um, alternative dance music like the whole jazz dance and acid jazz and rare groove scenes were all kind of like you know there's all this sort of thing going on so it's a great stack of music and the other thing is is a lot of old 60s and early 70s records were still really really cheap and nobody knew what they were and so it was, it was a fantastic time to be discovering strange records sometimes albums sometimes singles doesn't matter but by, by people you'd never heard of and who no one knew anything Thing about and you'd play them and everyone would go mad and what what's this what's this and then you, you'd, you'd have to confess it was some you know very cheesy looking early 70s easy <laughs> listening version of whatever it was you know spinning wheel or you know ticket to ride whatever I mean I had an album by Brian Bennett's Illustrated London Noise which is one of those sort of Studio 2 stereo albums honestly it's the best one of the best Hammond organ albums in the world Alan Hawkshaw is all over it and there was a version of Ticket to Ride that I used to play when I was at university and, and all these other incredible records that, that were kind of really groovy and funky and just sort of fitted in with what bands like the, the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and the Charlatans were doing. But also there were there were other bands that were kind of on the periphery of that. James Taylor Quartet, obviously, The Godfathers, you know, there's Boys Wonder. There's this mad scene sort of towards between sort of 1987 and 1991, which, which was so close to being mod. And it kind of clipped nicely you know, attached nicely to the whole thing with, you know, the Style Council were doing and what a few of the other sort of bands around that time were doing as well. A lot of the indie scene, you know, bands like the Primitives and the Darling Buds and, you know, um, yeah, it was it was a really vibrant time for, for, for interesting music. So I'd been, you know, an avid record collector, got into DJing at university and I discovered to my joy, you could play all these really wonderful, obscure records at people and they wouldn't go, boo, get off your rubbish, put Kylie on the way. Whatever, they'd be going, wow, this is great. This is brilliant. So I, I, I got really into DJing at that point um, and building up a huge collection of old junk, which um, actually had loads of great music in. And, you know, fast forward sort of three or four years, I'm um, DJing at Wendy May's Locomotion in um, the Town and Country Club in Kentish Town. Um, wonderful venue that I'd, I'd been to see a couple of bands at and never thought I'd ever have anything to do with and ended up being, you know, a DJ there pretty much every Friday night night for a few years and and it, that was when I first realised that there was a market outside of a student union for this kind of thing and Wendy May, brilliant, wonderful woman, she is the reason I'm still doing what I'm doing now because she took notice of me when I kept asking her for records that I thought she might know because I thought everybody who DJ would know all this kind of stuff, especially the sort of thing that she played, the sort of 60s and 70s soul and funk and that kind of thing. And she'd never heard of any of it. So I did her a tape and she said, oh, you've got to come and DJ. This this stuff's brilliant. So I, I, the first night I DJed there, I think I was told I had to get there, you know, by sort of 10.30 because the band were going to finish and then you had to start straight after the band. And it was level 42. <laughs> and so so um, it was it was incredible. I had a, I had an audience of people who were kind of you know at right angles to what I was into because the sort of soul funk roots of Level Forty Two. There were a few people there that might be into it, and a few other people who were kind of into the pop side of it. And anyway, just so I just started playing. Um, I believe in miracles by the Jackson Sisters or whatever, and you know a Superstition by Stevie Wonder and the, the theme to Starsky and Hutch by James Taylor Quartet, and then I think I can't remember some some something by the Mohawks, and then sort of started getting a little bit more daring and put a bit of northern soul in there and about and, and i kept the crowd going i thought this is great I'm, I'm i'm having this but anyway i did this for a few years and then um i've been buying records off a, a record shop in 
um, Hanway Street in Camden called Out on the Floor. And there was a basement bit. And in the basement, there was this guy, a couple of years, three or four years older than me, but pretty much on the same sort of wavelength with, with the kind of things that we, we were into. And I was buying records off of him and going, because I, you know, I was working as a postman as well. So I had two jobs. I was basically working as a postman during the day and then DJing at night. And I just had a bag of, you know, not necessarily disposable income, but certainly I had enough money to sort of go in there and spend sort of two or 300 quid in one go on records. By then, Wendy Mays local motion had moved to the underworld in Camden because TNC had shut and so we were doing every Friday night at the underworld and it was really rammed out it was wonderful wonderful night and um, anyway this guy in the record shop Paul Paul Tunkin his name was and he said um, I'm starting a club do you want to come and DJ at it and I said yeah I'd love to so I went and DJed at the first night and a load of people who went to the locomotion on the Friday then came on the Saturday and we had a really interesting mixture he bought in a load of people who were kind of on the indie art school kind of of that side of it and then all my sort of locomotion sort of 60s 70s clubby people and mods and things were all coming along as well and and it was just this great meeting point and meeting and mixing of of subcultures and um yeah, it wasn't called Blow Up then. It was called, I think, Londinium or something. But um, the, it very quickly turned into Blow Up. And that's, again, I think one of the reasons why um, Britpop happened was because it, it wasn't necessarily that, you know, we were all waving a Union Jack and sort of listening to nothing but, you know, sort of the kinks or whatever and being all, you know, hey, British music's great. Because obviously we weren't. I mean, we were, we were listening to everything. We were playing, you know, Northern Soul, American Indie, um, sort of funky jazz from the Black Forest, you know, it's all sorts of stuff, you know, strange KPM music library albums, you know, we weren't, it wasn't all a diet of gall, blimey, cockney, but what it did have is it had a little bit of sort of unusualness and variety. And I think that's what appealed to people. And it's what appealed to people like Blur. Graham Coxon and Damon Albarn used to come fairly regularly and check out what we were doing. And um, I got to DJ, I think it was Janice Long's birthday party. And they were all there and they said to me, you've got to come on our tour that we're doing. So I thought, yeah, okay, whatever. That's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. I got back from uh, being on the post. I was still living at home at that point. And my, my mum had left a message on the on the stairs when I came in saying, you have to phone this guy. It's about going on tour with a band called Blur, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, okay, bless him. And, and um, so I, I, it all happened. You know, we packed the, the, the record decks into the back of my car and drove around following their mini bus all over the country and the rest as they say is hysteria yeah amazing i mean and do you know what the sad thing right now is we're in kind of lockdown three is that how much you miss the social aspect of nights like that and being with people and and you know the live gig and and just you know that, that i'm kind of feeling emotional when you kind of talk about nights well, like that is, you know it is it's it's hard not to be um but but what's What's even kind of worse, I suppose, is that is the fact that so many, so much of all of that was was based around this idea of spontaneity. You know, the fact that you could be you could be out and someone would go, "Hey, let's go here," or "Let's do this," or you'd be at a gig and someone would go, "Hey, there's this party we should go to," or "Hey, there's this club we should go and check out." You know, you didn't feel like you had to tell anybody where you were. So, I mean, it was always in the days before mobile phones. I mean, hardly anybody had them in those days, apart from incredibly rich people who were kind of going, "Bye, bye." Sell, you know, I'm on the train or whatever, you know, you, you know, you bet your life sort of Tracy Jacks or the charmless man or whatever had mobile phones, but nobody else did. It was just kind of amazingly spontaneous time. And I think that um, that's something that I think not only is, is, is being killed by COVID, but also a little bit by social media and things. Everybody feels, you know, one of the lovely things about Blow Up is that I don't think anybody who ever went or certainly anyone who, who went regularly, no one was doing it ironically. There was nobody there who was sort of saying oh this is fun I'm going to put these clothes on and go oh look at me oh park life whatever you know there's nobody doing that was, everybody who was there was kind of committed to it in a way that people don't seem to commit to things anymore um, because nobody wants to feel like they're making a fool of themselves you know nobody wants to be sort of like getting thumbs downs or nobody wants to be getting trolled on on whatever the social media of today is I mean crikey I, I, I've no idea but it, it, I don't I, I don't think I don't think um, a club like blow up is possible anymore um, for all kinds of reasons but chiefly because no one wants to make a fool of themselves everyone wants to feel like they're doing something that's really sort of cool and brilliant and wonderful and that their lives are great and the fact remains that for most people who who went 
to blow up and who were part of doing blow up, their lives weren't great. Their lives were terrible. Their lives were awful, but they wanted to do something about it. They wanted to mould sort of culture in a way that they, they could feel happy about because they couldn't do anything else. And they couldn't, couldn't change the economy, but you could persuade a load of people to dance to grooving with Mr. Blow by Mr. Blow. You know, it's, it's <laughs> what you do. It feels to me like this kind of music that you've discovered certainly influenced your kind of particular solo albums. For um, So, you know, you're on Acid Jazz Records, this kind of iconic label um, with brand new heavies, um, Spitfires, Jamiroquai. The first album is um, Billion Pound Projects in 2005, which is just lovely. But it t- when you talk about those kind of songs... I love things, um, things like um, 100, 100 Oxford Street, which I'm guessing is about 100 Club. Because I, yeah, I was trying to figure yeah. out where it was. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. is it Boots HMV end or is it the other end of Oxford Street? Um, I and think I thought, the, clue, the clue is possibly in there. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, know. Right. I, was trying, I was trying to work out the address. Uh, so like, what, what, what number Oxford Street is the 100 <laughs> Club at? I, I don't know. Yeah. You've got to bear in mind, Andy, I'm an idiot. When you think about <laughs> that and, and songs like um, See You There, which had... Um, I forget the name now, the lady who's... The Linda Lawrence. Stevie, um, Stevie Wonder, wasn't it? Um, yeah, Linda Lawrence. Linda Lawrence, yeah. yeah. Those songs you put together for that album feel very much like the kind of stuff you say you were playing and discovering from a DJ point of view as well. Was that kind of in your mind when you were kind of producing that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wanted to make records that I would be happy playing in my DJ sets and the people that I knew who liked what I did would be happy to dance to. And I've got considerably better technically at making those sort of records than I was then. I mean, again, pretty much everything on those records was done at home, you know, in a in in very reduced circumstances, in a in a, a, a stairwell in Finchley. I think a lot of that album was done. And um, apart from some of the drums that were done in a in in a studio in Shepherd's Bush, and I think you know the, the Kenny Burke's vocal was done in his hotel room on a an SM58 microphone. I don't know if you know anything about microphones at all, but it's the kind of bog standard sort of microphone that most people will recognise as being a microphone. You know, yeah, that was, was when, I, when I used to work for the BBC in the nineties. That was the thing we took out with this this thing called a Ewer, which was this massive, yeah. big, portable reel-to-reel machine that would be like. Yeah. A- you're right, like the world's most basic mic, but a decent job, but yeah. And, and, and like the Ewer, you could drop it on your foot and it's your foot that would come off worst. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm no stranger to the world of Ewers. Um, it's, uh, I have one kicking around somewhere, probably in, in Bassett Law, in my mum and dad's shed, where I've got a, a, a little studio that I, I, I can't go to at the moment because of lockdown. But this old technology, that, but it wasn't even old technology. I did the very, very basic versions of digital equipment and everything was fantastically expensive so all the kit i had was it wasn't vintage it was just knackered i had a, a yamaha sampler that i had oh i don't know was it 40 was it 32 megabytes of sampling ram in it which at the time was probably as much as anyone could afford and it was second third possibly fourth hand it looked like it had been run over um, and it, <laughs> it, it 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 sort of worked and i did most of the album using that and they um one of those old plastic ibooks um, the very early Apple laptop um, and the only way I could keep it from overheating was to put um, ice packs wrapped in tea towels underneath it. Um, There's one fantastically hot summer where I, I, I was trying to get mixes of the album done and nothing was working properly and it was the only way I could keep the bloody thing working was to sort of like cool it with these ice packs and because um, it was it was it was trying to do things it wasn't designed to do you know cramming you know pro tools onto it it, it just shouldn't have done it I, I was tidying up and I actually found the um, the hard drive with all the multi-tracks from Billion Pound Project on it I just thought well oh, crikey I haven't listened to this for ages I wonder if it still works even so I fired it up it does and I just thought oh my goodness me what on earth was I thinking you know there's all these sort of terrible sort of technical issues with it you know they were great never mind the musical and the creative you know it's, it's just you know the clunky editing and the, everything's kind of cooked everything's over compressed and it's just oh, what, what on earth were you doing you know at, <laughs> at, at the time it was great it had a really good vibe yeah. to it and people really liked it I mean I, I, I but I, I I kind of want to keep looking forward I think as a lot as a lot of people do you if you find yourself sort of doing the same thing all the time you you, you get into a bit of a rut and it's not very fulfilling and I'd kind of done what I wanted to do with Billion Pound Project and it's a nice little time capsule probably it's an album that if it had come out about six years earlier I think would have would have done really well but of course by the time it came out there were all sorts of other people who had come through the Britpop and the, the Big Beat and the kind of sort of 
thing, you know, sample them, the sort of sampled delic kind of culture and were doing much better records, probably because they weren't DJing every weekend and, you know, <laughs> working on the post yeah. during the day and all that, you know, they, you know, so, so, but by the time Billion Pound Project came out, it was kind of a little bit overshadowed by some of the other records, but just better records, frankly. And I'd also like to get into the new stuff and, and kind of, um, you know, particularly how you've teamed up with one of the founder members of Fairport, uh, Fairport Convention for an, an album in recent years, which I think is really interesting at time. But as this is a Paul Weller fan podcast, we should probably get on to kicking into your time with Paul. And when was it you first met? Am I right in thinking you were a roadie at the time? I was. Um, the funny thing is, the first time I ever met Paul Weller, um, and he won't remember it at all, it was probably 1991, 92. He got on a tube train that I was on, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and our eyes kind of met, and we both checked out what each other were wearing, and it was kind of like, oh, all right. And then I had to get off, but he was obviously going somewhere else. So we, anyway, we weren't we weren't on the tube train for very long together. But it was like, oh my god, I've just seen Paul Weller. He has looked at what I'm wearing and he deems it acceptable. You know, <laughs> this is this is good. This is this is a sign. I can't remember exactly what I had on at the time, but it was it, at that point it was probably something. You know, it, it was probably something vaguely sort of like late period acid jazz sort of. You know, I had I, I think I had a, a sharp pair of trousers and some good shoes. I had a nice top on, and I think I had a, a sort of um, Burberry raincoat or something. It was, but it was something that was kind of. It was an outfit that shouldn't have looked good on someone who was probably only about twenty-one. It was kind of like a. I obviously pulled it off, and he 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 was wearing um, a, a beautiful um, striped top, and he had a little crucifix on a chain, and he had really really sharply done jeans and a really good pair of loafers and I just thought shit that's Paul Weller there, well, there we are so that's the first time I actually sort of saw saw him in the flesh so that would have been around the time of the Paul Weller movement of him coming back and kicks, you know, kicking oh. his solo career and you're right, right at that time he looked, he looked so good at that time didn't he? It was he, he, looked, he, he looked amazing and more, more significantly the music he was making sounded amazing I mean that was that first solo album probably one of the most influential records to me um, at that point I was starting to make music then with um, my friend Pete Twyman and we, we were we were sort of like putting various band ideas and projects and things together I'd, I'd come back from university and he'd already been in a couple of bands and there's one band called The Upshot which had done which were a sort of style counselly indie band they'd sort of they, they were really interesting we were starting to put a band together now I was back from university and I had a load of ideas and so did he and then, and then the, the, the first Paul Weller album came out it's like gracious me this is tremendous uh, this is the sort of thing we want to do so anyway I've been making records and things but obviously there's no money in uh, making records a lot of the time so it was all I was working as roadie and um, I was roadieing for a band that was on a tour supporting Paul Weller a band called Dogs who ought to have been really big and I think again if they'd been around a little bit earlier they would have really cleaned up they had they had a really charismatic front man called Johnny Cook who was kind of in that sort of the mixture of of um, Lee Brillo and Ian Curtis, and he just had this kind of "you're not messing with me," you know. I'm, you know, I, and he meant it. He was, he was, a, you know, he had a certain sort of John Cooper Clarkness about him as well. He kind of really meant it, and and I think. Paul liked that band. Um, I think he was he was quite keen on them. I think they, they I mean they they used to do a sort of encore with a bomb in Water Street. You know, again it wasn't ironic. It was just kind of the, the guts and the power of it, and it was just they loved it. And I I really enjoyed roadieing for them. I had a lot of fun working with them. But we were we were on this tour with with Paul Weller towards the end of the tour. We did a gig somewhere. I can't remember it was. It might have been in Newcastle, the Newcastle Arena. Paul had sort of said hello a couple of times, but I was too busy. Being being a roadie and all that kind of thing. Anyway, I was I was just uh, walking across the, the the auditorium to go and I don't know find something, and um, I could see this knot of people over by the mixing desk, and there was just a shout of Andy, and um, this bloke comes bounding towards me and sort of throws his arms around me in a massive bear hug. It's Phil Jupiter's, and I've known Phil Jupiter since the early 90s him and Wendy May were good mates and of course I knew him as Porky the Poet from the Red Wedge tours and stuff like that and he and I used to DJ together sometimes when Wendy couldn't do the locomotion he'd turn up with me and we'd DJ together so we'd kind of had this bond that had gone back an awful long time he was obviously at, at that point in the sort of about 2004 2005 he was he was at the height of his sort of never mind the buzzcocks pomp and everyone knew he was and he'd been chatting to Paul and um 
Paul was kind of like, oh, you know, it's all this then. And, and, and um, Phil said, oh, is this, this is Andy. I said, is he DJing tonight or something? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm uh, I'm roading for one of the bands here. And, and, and then Phil Jupiter started sort of waxing lyrical about all the old nights at the locomotion. And, and Paul was like, oh, wow. So this this sort of roadie who has been doing his thing, sort of plugging things in and going one, two, one, two, and sort of <laughs> pulling, pulling uh, Johnny out of Paul's dressing room at after gigs and stuff you know he's actually someone who is a, a bona fide musician in his own right anyway so um, the following year we, we were on another tour together and at that point I decided I'd give Paul a copy of Billion Pound Project and a CD with some demos on it that I'd been working up to sort of like with, with a view to doing another album that was that at the end of the tour you know everybody went home and all that kind of thing and uh, it was um, yeah it was sort of December 2006 my phone rang in the middle of the night my mobile rang in the middle of the night and it's like what the fuck and it was a number that I didn't know and it was okay so I thought it was an emergency so and it was it was like it was sort of one in the morning or something I thought so anyway I answered the phone hello and he said yeah this is Paul 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 Weller you know I've just been playing that CD of yours with that song on it oh it's brilliant I love it I love it got to do something with this song got to do something with this song I've got some words and everything and he just starts gabbling away ah, rah, rah, you try to be lonely it's like, okay brilliant okay oh, well that's that's nice Paul well um, um well, let's <laughs> let's um let's let's talk about this later it's it's sort of one o'clock in the morning so I, I sort of hung up and he went off half an hour later the phone rings again <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's like okay so I'm, I'm back with, yeah 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 we've got to go off i've given you i've given you a number uh, to, to charles at blackburn you've got to come over we've got to do this song we've got to do this song fair enough anyway the following day i get a phone call from uh, charles at blackburn studios and we set up a session where we go in and um do this song and so um I went over really early on the, the appointed day to um, do the song. And so I, I thought, OK, let's let's load up my session file from Pro Tools into the big system at, at Black Bar. And I've, I'm going to be really intimidated and all the rest of it. And I turned out Charles is this absolutely lovely guy. I discovered to my joy that I actually had a better version of Pro Tools running than the one they had because they'd only <laughs> recently just got into it because Paul until that point had been kind of very much analog only. He was doing everything thing on tape but this was kind of like the beginning of him discovering that you could make records in this slightly more well I don't know cost effective is a word that springs to mind given that mm. <laughs> reels of yeah, tape are yeah. fantastically expensive and you spend half the morning yeah. setting everything up before you know where you are you have to do it all over again it was wonderful Steve Craddock came down to play the drums I'd already put the bass and some guitar on it and the various sort of sketched out the horn parts and then we got in a horn section that can I think Dom Glover from Incognito was on it um, Jack O'Peak was in there as well. Um, a friend of mine called Michelle Imbierski, she came in and played a bit of sax on it too. Um, Steve Craddock, I said, was on the drums. Paul decided he wanted to do a bit more guitar. We got the track really cooking and then um, Paul went in and sang the vocal and it was wonderful. It was absolutely, it was, it was a lot of fun. We, um, I, I think I passed an audition at that point because um, I replaced all the kind of MIDI horrible keyboard sort of electric computer piano with the real. They've got a, a wonderful grand piano at Black Barn and um, I went in and played the part and it was going really well. Paul was in the control room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going, this is great, this is great. And then I'm sitting there thinking, oh crikey, it goes from C, the easiest key to play of all on the piano. It modulates to E flat. It's one of the hardest keys of all to play on the piano, and I've got to do it because <laughs> Paul was watching, and I can't just sort of go. Oh, I just did a MIDI transpose. And I've got. I've actually got to play this. So I did this great glissando down the keyboard, just kind of, and then just plonked it into place. And luckily, I think the the, the musical gods were on my side. I came down in the right place and um, <laughs> carried on, and it was great. I styled that one out. So how did you come from that point to then be part of Paul's band? Because I've I've read around that period that Paul. There's the kind of, again, I think it was like a, mid, a midnight phone call to Steve Craddock with Paul kind of saying, he's done with the music business, there's nothing more to come. And then suddenly, you know, a year later, a couple of years later, we end up with um, 22 Dreams, which you were kind of, you know, a big part of as well and big part of that touring band. So how, how do you kind of go from the single with Paul to being part of the lineup? We've done Are You Trying to Be Lonely? And then he said, well, there's a song that I want you to play bass on now. And I thought, okay. And it was uh, all I want to do is be with you, you know. And then I did that and I did a bit of cello on... 
because um, he discovered I could play the cello. So sort of back I got in my car, drove to what well, it wasn't my car, it was my mum's car because I, I live in the middle of London, so I haven't got a car. Um, and my mum and dad lived in Watford at the time, and it was you know I, I just got the train to Watford, grab a car, put some stuff in it, you know. So I went all the way back to Watford, picked my cello up, which I don't think had been out of its case since I was about I don't know. I'd done a session with it. I guess probably in about 2003 and that's the last time I'd used it. That's the last time I'd even looked at it. So um, I, I quickly checked it still had all its strings on and I had a bow and everything and drove it back to, to Black Barn and ended up doing some cello on night lights and some other sort of improvisy stuff that I, I I don't know if it sort of became part of the kind of sound collage of the, the record. I don't know. But it was it was it was sort of buried in the mix there somewhere in night lights. You can hear it. It's, it's, it went on tour though, didn't fun. it? I, have I not seen you oh, play cello yeah, on we, tour? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I took I took actually no that well I, I did take it with me and it, it it lasted until the first rehearsal. But unfortunately one of the roadies was a little heavy handed with it and he said I've, I've something terrible happened to your cello Andy something really awful what's that then and I went and looked at it and it was in bits it, it had literally fallen apart like a clown's car he opened the case it was like it was like it had been flat packed you know it was like a self a self assembly cello and so um, I was given um, a budget to go and get another cello for the tour and um, again sort of there was only one place to go and there's a music shop called Thwaites in um, bushy just outside Watford that I knew really well because when I was a kid obviously it was the place to go and get all your cello strings and stuff like that so I phoned them up and said you ain't got any cellos have you for, for this amount of money and they said oh we've, we've, we have a few would you like to come and try them out and uh, so I went along and um, there was one that they could fit a pickup in for sort of doing live work I thought oh well, this is better um, I'll get them to do that so that's the cello that I took on tour and it's and then when I got mine back it had been to some I don't know somewhere up in the Midlands some sort of guitar repair you know industrial sort of thing and and it's now the most sort of robust and indestructible cello you've ever seen it's, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a bolt through the neck holding it on you know it's it's, not, it's it's absolutely you know it's been repaired you know with, with a view to going out on the road with you know Black Sabbath or something, you know. It's not, you know. It's, it's, it's but anyway, that's that's me. That's me, 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 me cello destruction story. Yeah, that opening of the album, that song, you know, and you are playing it down. That kind of nightlights is, um, and and all the bits because I know um, Paul's wife's Hannah's doing backing vocals, Craddock's doing you know twelve string guitar. I don't know. This felt like a whole new journey and a whole new kind of really bold, ambitious projects and period. This double album, Twenty Two Dreams, and like you say, you kind of you know you're playing on some of the other tracks and all I want to do, which was one of the singles off Twenty Two dreams as well at that point you go on tour and tour this album too and there was kind of a bit of a restructure around the band at this time so steve white had kind of uh, moved on see pilgrim had come in was there anything from you where you're kind of going hold on i'm kind of playing bass lines from one of the best basses and well-known bassists the world has ever seen in terms of bruce foxton when he's doing the well as playing the jam songs and taking over from damon as well did you feel kind of from the fans like you were you were both kind of welcomed into the band um because those are those are kind of big shoes to fill i think um, absolutely. I think um, if I if I thought about it any more, that you know, if, if I mean, it was it was I wasn't even worried about whether the fans were going to accept me. It was more like, can I do this? It's a, a really amazing thing to discover that that actually you can, and that someone who you've admired for a very long time is is not only giving you the chance to do something, but has absolute confidence in your ability to do it. It's it's an incredible thing, and so to be honest. It's not that I didn't care what the fans thought. It's just that I, if I if I thought about it for a moment, I I just I'd have just sort of locked myself in a cupboard and and refused to do it because I mean it was it was a hard enough job thinking well actually the last person who played this song live was you know Bruce Foxton or Camille Hines or you know Yolanda yeah. Charles or somebody somebody really good you know Damon Minchella <laughs> so something you know someone who's actually you know done this problem. I mean I've, I've played loads of gigs with loads of bands and I've, I've played loads of songs and I've, I've had to sort of, you know, do things. And so obviously, technically, I suppose I could do it. And it was just discovering that, yeah, I can do this. This is this is all right. But I, I wouldn't have done it if I'd thought about what the fans were going to think. I do know that there were a few people who, who just weren't having it. You know, they were, I like it. I mean, the, the, the sort of people who don't like change in any way, shape or form feel quite resentful if they're being asked to sort of like, 
stretch their minds a little bit. And they and they they they're the kind of people who were kind of you know who, who maybe had been left behind by the style council, but came back in when you know it became more fashionable to like Weller again. You know, and they probably it's funny, isn't it? That's, yeah, it's my favourite Weller song. Yeah, that Pebbles on the Beach, my favourite Weller song. It's brilliant, it's brilliant. <laughs> you know, I saw one. Yeah, hanging on a wire. Yeah, I love that one. I know. You know, there's that sort of mentality, and and you think well brilliant you know you like it you're coming to the gigs you're watching us play but i could you know there were one or two people on on, on some of the sort of chat forums in those days you know i, I wasn't on any of them myself but a, a couple of people i know used to sort of send me the most choice sort of things and i'd i'd, it, I'd been in the band a little while and I, I was able to have a bit of a laugh about it really because it it didn't matter i was enjoying it by then a little bit more i wasn't worried about it. I respect the position I was in. I, I knew I was having to fill some very big shoes, so I thought I've got to do a really good job. And I respected the fact that there were people out there who probably didn't want to see me. Um, mm. So I thought, well, I have to do a good job for them because I don't want them to feel any more disappointed than they already are. Um, and actually, a lot of the time, they, they're not interested in who's playing bass anyway. They, they just want to see Paul. That's fine as well because I spent most of the time in the Paul Weller band sort of like whenever they put a spotlight on me I'd sort of move away from it a little bit because it's, it's not my it's not me I'm not you know it's, it's it's him you've come to see go and have a look at him I'm, I'm just I just want to get I, I, I just want to do the job and play and it's brilliant and that's the role of a, a, of a bass player I don't I don't have any pretensions about wanting to be in the spotlight and occasionally you sort of accidentally find yourself in a spotlight but that's different the band set immediately sounded so tight to me. So you've kind of got new members, new lineup. You're touring the world and, you know, the US, Japan, um, yeah. Australia, festivals, you know, Glastonbury Tea in the Park, Isle of Wight. I, I saw you guys, I don't think it was the Isle of Wight Festival then. I think it was something, maybe Osborne House, perhaps. Oh, um, yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah, one. yeah on 20 yeah, Street Dreams, yeah. which felt like a night yeah. I was going to die in the, in the mosh pit of the front row. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying. Um, but immediately stand, sounded so tight as a band. Were there any kind of standout gigs for you in that period? The first gig that I did with um, Paul Weller was uh, the Roundhouse, and it was in March of 2008. I remember we went to the studio and we had, in total, I think we played for 20 minutes rehearsing we were there all day and i think we we spent most of the time <laughs> drinking, the the time? Drink, drinking right. tea chatting mucking around um listening to music having fun um and then we went in and we we did some work and and it was a tw 20 minute rehearsal for a half hour show because i don't think there were, there were a couple of the songs with uh, paul said oh don't bother rehearsing that it'd be fine you know you know that one. <laughs> and uh, so that was a real that was an amazing gig um for all sorts of reasons the first time I'd ever played with Paul live on a big stage and it was in front of loads of people and I thought okay this would be fun and it was it was great so that was the first the first on the 22 Dreams tour I think we played in Oxford a little place in Oxford. That was a fun gig again because I just, you've done gigs before and I mean, I'd even played in that venue before, but it's the first time that I'd, I'd kind of played at that level of anticipation and excitement, you know, from the, everybody who was there was kind of dead keen to see what was going on and, and it was, you know, it was a really, really positive vibe. In fact, the whole of those, those that, that first tour was really positive. I think there's, there was a sense that we were all kind of finding our feet a little bit, but at the same time, everybody involved in it wanted it to be good. Um, and everybody else in the band did as well. I mean, you said it's, it was a completely new band. Um, Steve Pilgrim, brilliant. I mean, he is a better singer and a guitarist than he is a drummer, and he is a fantastic drummer, as you know. Andy Crofts, great all-round instrumentalist, you know, very, very talented person at doing what he does. Very, very, very good keyboard player but also very very good backing singer and suddenly having the dimension of sort of multi-part harmonies happening on stage and I think it was something Weller really got off on I think that was really exciting for, for everybody and I, I'm not a great singer so I sort of kept out of it a little bit just sort of stayed in the background but but it was really good fun to listen to and to be able to play off of all of those different people and their everything that they did was was great and Paul's such a you know he's such a generous musician in the sense that he sort of makes space for everybody else to sort of come up with ideas or to do little things that sort of add a little bit of a new dimension. If you do, if you do something he doesn't like, he'll tell you quite forcefully sometimes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but if you if you do something and, and he, he doesn't say anything, generally it's because he, he likes it and it's fine. Live, there were some some key periods for me, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. The kind of five nights in a row at the Royal Albert Hall, which um, which frighteningly is is I think eleven years ago now, which shows you like you said earlier how time flies. At, at one point, you handing over bass to Bruce. Fox 
Roxon on one of those nights, I think, if I remember. Oh, that, um, that, 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 that was, you know, it, it, there were some people who'd say, oh, yeah, you, didn't you get the ump when Bruce came on? They said, no, no, it's <laughs> absolutely not, because um, he played on the record. And also, more importantly, you know, it's the closest I'll ever get to seeing the jam. Even more significantly, it's the, the, the you know, to be part of that playing in the same band as all of them, because I think when he played the bass, I think I played the piano on one, the guitar on another, and Hammond on another. I think it was it was a really fun thing to be doing. You know, it, it just it just felt good. And then the other one was, I think, again, you just mentioned the Roundhouse. Actually, five nights in a row when he kicks off the, the new album, Sonic Kicks, and played the whole entire album ah, from start to finish. See, that to me. That is the epitome of, that's the sort of focal point of, of my time in the band doing that. Um, and certainly it's my favourite period of Paul's career, Sonic Kicks, partly because the, the ambition of taking it out and doing it and playing the whole thing from beginning to end. That had all sorts of musical and technical challenges, which we kind of like, it was a mountain that we climbed and we, we climbed it in the studio and in rehearsal and everywhere else. And then when we took it on tour, it was it was tremendous. It's something that you hear about people having the ambition to do, but you never think you'll ever be part of something that will do that. And to be part of that was, it was incredible. Yeah. I was reading something the other day about the making of that album, which I hadn't quite realised that how much a key role that um, that Stan played on that in terms of kind of the production and, and kind of chopping it up and revisiting parts of it and stuff. And you kind of think we're well, taking that to a live format or like live, you know, live performance over those five nights must have been, I mean, just a terrifying. He came on the road with us and he right. had a, um, he had his own little rig at the back of the hall with little bits and pieces on so that um, he could kind of like mix in some of the sort of more textural things as we were playing and it was it made for some fairly hairy technical challenges and I'm, I'm glad that all my all I had to do was sit there and play the bass because or stand there and play the bass because having been a roadie and seeing the sort of like the headache of uh, having to sort of get all this cabling in and synchronise some sort of like trundling old ADAT machine with the, the, the everything else it was oh good gracious me the challenge for me playing that there, were, there was so much of it where you'd go in the studio and do a little part and you'd think okay well I've done that now and then you, you, you'd have a listen to the track and you just wouldn't recognise any of it because it had been sort of like cut up and spliced and remixed to within an inch of its life and I just remember on Drifters having played in the studio sort of doing the bass line on that and then having been presented with the track thinking but how on earth am I going to learn this because it doesn't sound it's one point there's like a rhythm which is actually sort of really hard to play because one finger's here and another one needs to be somewhere else and you just see anyway so what i normally do when i'm approaching songs to learn to, to go out and play is i write all the you know I, I write the parts out i sort of either have the chords or i get a bit of stave paper and write can sort of play along with it and learn it and just kind of get in the groove for it a little bit and then but with this one i again i found my songbook the notes that i made made for for this tour and in, in there and i just when it came to drifters i hadn't got anything written down just feel it <laughs> because it's the only thing you could do you just have to turn your mind off and just feel it and as soon as you stop worrying about it you can play it and it's it that was the key to doing the sonic kicks thing on the road it was just feeling it because it was an album that was made with a lot of feeling as much as it was made with yankai but splicing things up on his pro tools rig that he he and everybody else barely knew how to make work um it was a, a record that um had an awful lot of feeling in an awful lot of emotion there's some really incredibly sort of tender emotional moments in there i think there's a great bit in um study in blue that, that when we did that sort of whole thing as this sort of dub thing it's it's just wonderful i i, I really really loved playing those songs dangerous age as well i think is is you know that when, when i first heard the, the the demo for that i thought oh yeah this is going to be a bit special it's funny because it was that period where paul was talking about about discovering Bowie for the first time and sort of getting into Bowie and all that sort of thing. And he was making a big deal of the fact that, you know, I've just discovered Bowie's brilliant. Yeah, well, he's, he's fantastic. He's, you know, it was interesting to discover, actually, that Bowie had been a big influence um, throughout most of Paul's career. I mean, it wasn't something that he made a big deal of. And obviously, it was, it was just something we were talking about one day. And he said, well, yeah, of course I, of course I listened to Bowie. You know, everybody does. You know, everybody did. But I think it's sort of, 
sort of the difference, I suppose, between hearing it and understanding it and getting it. I think that's the difference. I think when it's it's that it was that wonderful moment where you could tell that um, everything that Paul was trying to do was to sort of push things forward a little bit. And I think it, it's a shame that it only turned. But um, David Bowie only had a few more years left of of, of his life, really, because I think that it was clear with the last two Bowie albums that there were a lot of things going on that you just think, well, what could he do with the world today? Luckily, Paul, hopefully, and has got many more years left to come. And I'm very excited to hear what he's up to next, as indeed we all are. Yeah. And particularly because there's a new album around the corner from lockdown. Um, but Life on the Road with Weller, what's that like? Not a lot of rehearsing going on, but it sounds things. Well, well we, how, how messy did say, that get? <laughs> I, I said it wasn't a lot of rehearsal. We, we would rehearse fairly solidly. The, the week or so before we actually went away, we'd have a few days rehearsal at the studio where we'd kind of work out what we were going to do. And then by the end of them, we kind of knew what we were going to do and we, we were kind of competent at playing them. And then we'd hire an enormous soundstage somewhere, like a proper film studio soundstage, where we could put all the production in. So we'd have the PA, we'd have some of the lights, we'd have all that kind of thing. And that's where we worked on the show. That's where it sort of came together as a piece of, of performance. Um, and we could work the sets out and how they were going to work and the, and the crew could be there and could, you know, work out how we were going to do it. So, yeah, I, I joke about it not doing a lot of rehearsal, but actually when it came to it, the rehearsal time was used and utilised to the, the fullest possible extent. And so there was this kind of well-oiled machine on the one part of it. And then certainly the first couple of years, it was well-oiled in another sense as well. The day that Paul decided to stop drinking, which is, you know, and sombreros are off to the man. I mean, I, as far as I know, he hasn't touched a drop since, you know, for about 11 years. Um, but the day that he stopped drinking, a lot of people breathed a sigh of relief. And um, <laughs> it's it's not because... For their own limits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it wasn't because we were we were worried about Paul, but we were worried about ourselves. I mean, crikey. But it was fun. It was, I, I can't deny it was fun. And it felt like you were part of some sort of weird salty old story of, of, a, of a, an old a sort of 70s roadie it, but it wasn't quite as grotesque and grim and, and seedy but it was just quite a lot of drinking <laughs> but but to be honest I don't think it ever really got in the way of anything it could have done and I think it's you, you look back and you think actually I'm glad now that it stopped when it did and it meant that it, it could it's it's a hard enough thing to do to get up every morning and go out and play a gig because it does take a lot out of you but to do that when you've got a stinking hangover or you've got a kind of paranoid anxiety that you might have said something to somebody that you might regret or you know left your wallet or your clothes somewhere or, you know, <laughs> when you know it, it meant it meant suddenly there was a whole heap of kind kind of uh, paranoia that that wasn't hanging around anymore and I think for Paul as well it was very important it felt like there was a, a sort of clearing in his mind a sort of new perception that suddenly made everything feel a little better and it meant that you weren't sort of bleary eyed and, and tired and not enjoying it it meant that every day was a, a good day. Now before we wrap up on the podcast there's a few things I want to kind of touch on post Weller post Weller band I know that you've kind of been working with Kevin Rowland from Dex's as a producer um, the likes of Steve Pill Grim, the Weller connection continues, but and his solo stuff is brilliant. And remixes, um, Lisa Stansfield, Gabriella Chilmy, who was brilliant. I, I need to straight after this, I'm going to kind of Google to see what she's been up to since. But I want to talk about summertime dancing. So this was an LP you created with the legendary singer-songwriter Judy Diable, founding member of Fairport Convention. There's a couple of tracks particularly, so this kind of describe it this mesmerizing kind of blues track night of a thousand hours which is just fabulous and treasure which just kind of has this mental kind of killer keyboard sequence in it as well so t tell me about how how did that all come about billy reeves who does the uh, the travel on the bbc london he is also a very very talented songwriter and musician he had a band called the audience um, with Sophie Ellis Bexter on uh, I vocals. Love I love them. They and were so um, good. Yeah. he wrote all their songs. And um, I got to know I got to know him through various mutual friends. And he knew that I was a, a musician and a producer, and I had some microphones and a, a portable recording rig. And he he phoned me up one day and said, "I want to get Judy Diable to sing on this song that I've written for for my socialist rhythm and blues band, The Faction. Could you record it?" And um, so I said, "Well, yes, of course. I'd, I'd be glad to." So. So we went up to Judy's house in um, Oxfordshire. I'd never met Judy before. And um, I instantly got on with her. And it, she, she felt really, it, it's funny, she, she 
and I are, you know, we, we were we were born many years apart, but we had very similar educational experiences at school and cultural experiences. What was kind of weird was that whereas she was someone who had been part of something really quite exciting and very sort of influential in her way. She had absolutely, it had no importance in her life whatsoever. And she was um, happy that people thought it was great, but actually just comfortable getting on with the things that she did and being this kind of very, very beautiful soul. And um, we, we kind of got on and we kept in touch after this session. And um, it was, I suppose, towards the end of 2016, we been sort of bouncing song ideas off each other and sort of talking about maybe we should do an album together. It was just after I found out that um, I wasn't going to be in the Paul Weller band anymore. I, he was, I think, probably quite rightly decided he wanted to work with the people that he was recording with because knowing that knowing that he doesn't like to rehearse very much, it sort of makes sense to have a load of people who already know the songs. You know, it's certainly uh, you don't have to wait for that. And um, so I was I was staring at a potentially sort of fairly empty diary and. I thought, okay, well, what can what can I do? So I, I, I just phoned Judy up and said, um, I found myself at a little bit of a loose end and we, we seem to have enough songs. Um, do you want to do this record? She said, okay, then. I had a bit of a think about what sort of record I wanted to do and I, I desperately didn't want to do anything that was conventional in, in a, you know, I suppose it, it had been all that time I'd spent in Paul Weller's band and sort of learning all the songs and, you know, listening to the, the kind of approach that he did. But, but it was also discovering, you know, a, a whole pile of records that I, I absolutely loved and again records made by people who are much better at doing it so I suppose it was discovering all the records that um, Julian House was putting out on Ghostbox either as the Focus Group or Belbury Polly or whatever I'd kind of really got into those they were, they were sort of a soundtrack of my a lot of the time in the Weller Band there was a, an album that they did with Broadcast um, Broadcast and the Focus Group Investigate Witch Cults of the Radio Age which is not a particularly catchy title but it's one of the great and it's, it's a very hard listen of a record but my goodness me it, it bowled me over it was like so you can make records that sound like that okay I'm going to try and do something that's a bit like that but I'm going to try and get a little bit more of a song structure into it my parents had moved out of their house in Watford and one of the things that I'd been asked to do was go through all the great loads of redundant old technology that my dad kept in a cupboard under the stairs and I found all these old tape recorders, um, revoxes and vortexions and things like that, ferrographs and lots and lots of old tape from when um, he was involved with the talking newspaper in Watford and so there was this great archive of, of stuff that I wanted to try and sort of blend in and sort of use in a kind of hauntological kind of way and that's what I did. I'd spent ages copying these tapes using these machines that were kind of collapsing as I was doing them, you know, sort of falling to bits in front of my eyes, some of them were. And um, that's why there's this sort of slightly wonky, warped quality to a lot of summer dancing, because um, some of the sounds that I'm using to make the, the songs happen are actually from these old tapes. And you talk about uh, Night of a Thousand Hours. Um, that's a sample of someone left a kind of Bon Tempe type organ at my mum and dad's house um, for a little while. They, I think they borrowed it from this guy who, who was, was moving house and needed somewhere to put it. And I remember at one point, they my dad was playing around with it and recorded something on it. And I wasn't sure what it was that he'd recorded on it because when I played the tape back, the tape recorder that I had would only play at a much slower speed. So I got this... As I was listening to the tape, there's this bit on there of my dad playing this Bon Tempe organ, uh, whatever it was. And that's the bit that I cut to make this sort of sample thing in the background. And so I had a, I, I made a loop of tape in the old fashioned way and had that going around. And then after about three or four goes around, it fell to bits. But luckily, I'd recorded enough of it to then use it in the computer. That's where the, that came from. And then the idea of not being able to get to sleep, you know, a lot, a, a lot of the lyrical ideas um, on that record I came up with and then Judy refined them because she's better at writing you know she you know, rest her soul she was better at like, writing lyrics than I was still is um, <laughs> people say I write really good songs I absolutely don't but I, I lucked out with this one and, and and it's all about it's basically just me sitting in, in the bedroom that I sleep in at my mum and dad's when I go and stay with them and they live in this crazy desperately cold um, old sort of 
farmhouse in a in the middle of a little market town in Bassetlaw, people always go the wrong way up the road because they then realise it's not the turning that they should have gone up. They turn round and come back again. There's a, a chiming clock downstairs that chimes every quarter of an hour. So um, <laughs> you're dis and, and there's wind whistling through it, and, and so you're disturbed by um, people outside. You're disturbed by this rotten clock. It's so cold, and I just remember just writing down all this stuff about how I'm not able to sleep and then thinking well this would make a really interesting idea for a song you know and so that's kind of how how that happened and then for the piano solo in the middle of it I, I moved into um, their front room where the, the, the piano that I learned to play piano on I did have piano lessons believe it or not no, 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 no. but um, I learned to play piano and when I was a kid they still got it and so I, I used that as the piano for the songs on summer dancing I thought well you, you've got to go back to your, your childhood if you're going to make something that's a bit hauntological you might as well do that and you were talking about Treasure there's a song that's had a, a checkered past that's actually a song that I I first sent a demo to Acid Jazz with that song on probably in the mid 90s and they rejected it so I thought I needed another song and I thought, well, Judy will sing this beautifully. And um, now I know it's coming out on Acid Jazz and, uh, uh, and, they, and I just want them to listen to it and go, oh, man, that song's great. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. Oh, it's so, it's You're so ahead lovely. of your time, Andy. Come on. Well, you know, <laughs> 20 years ahead of your time. Well, I, mean, I had to go back and find a song from 20 years ago because I couldn't think of anything to write in 2017. <laughs> but there you are. Um, but that's, that's, um, it was an absolute pleasure working with Judy and I'm so glad that I got the chance to make the record with her and I'm so happy that so many people that knew her really liked that album and I'm so happy that we got to do a few shows and, and it was it was great it was, it was a funny old a funny old time because on, on the one hand you think okay I'm, I'm, I'm doing all these incredible things working with all sorts of wonderful people but at the same time there's a, a sort of big empty hold in your life because you're not in the Paul Weller band anymore and you think oh this is a bit this is a bit weird there a few people who sort of said, well, he's obviously, you know, what happens, you know, well, it's what Paul does. He, he finds different people that he wants to work with. And that's, that's what he does. The lovely thing is that there were so many things that I wanted to do when I was, you know, so many ideas that I had that I didn't, didn't have the time for. And I know I sound a bit like Spinal Tap, you know, you know, that whole sort of like, yeah, I envy us, you know, I could do a musical about Jack the Ripper called Saucy Jack or whatever, you know, <laughs> but, but there were so many, and it is an old cliche, but it's true. There were lots and lots of things that I didn't have time to do because the diary was totally full of being out on the road and since not being in the Paul Weller band I've discovered the joy of producing other people to the to a much greater extent than I ever did and working in studios working with other people who've got brilliant ideas and who write brilliant songs and working with them to bring them to fruition and get them out there that's even better than writing your own songs really you know it's 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 all the fun of doing that but without the hassle of actually having to write them i've i've worked with some truly wonderful people i did a just recently i've done an album uh, with um, louis philippe i don't know if you've 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 come across this one this is uh, the, the album louis philippe and the night mail the album's called thunderclouds uh, louis philippe is a guy whose music i absolutely loved without even knowing it was him who was doing it he was the um arranger and producer of a lot of the records that came out on l and cherry red back in the, the 80s and he'd worked with all sorts of people like the high llamas and the king of luxembourg and people like that and you think oh this this is great you know and i got the chance to play with him a couple of years ago um my there's a sort of little band that um me and robert rotifer and ian button from death in vegas and thrashing doves and stuff like that he, he plays the drums in that he's brilliant but we put this little band together to back a singer called john howard and we made an album with him again an album that i absolutely loved kid in a big world from 1974 it's a fantastic album some of it sounds like secret affair you'd love it you'd absolutely love right, it okay. but anyway it's, 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 it you should it's it's all over the internet it's fantastic listen to deadly nightshade and tell me that Ian Page never heard that. It's brilliant. But anyway, so we'd done this album with John Howard and then from doing that, we got asked to do an album um, in... Austria with a, a very, very well-known um, Austrian sort of figurehead of Austrian popular culture called Andre Heller. We made an album with him that came out a couple of years ago. 
this same band is now working with Louis Philippe. And we did a, a show with Louis Philippe in 2017. Was it 2018? I can't remember. And it was a little while ago now. After the show, he said, You've got, we, we've got to do an album together. And it took a little bit of getting together and, you know, stuff like that. But we've done it now and it, it's out now. With every record I make, I like to think it's the best thing that I've ever been on. But I can genuinely say at this precise moment in time that Thunderclouds by Louis Philippe and the Nightmare is the best record that I've ever had anything to do with. And if you're a fan of the Style Council, if you're a fan of 22 Dreams and that sort of way of trying to meld jazz and soul influences together but with the kind of continental sort of chanson storytelling vibe and with sort of a hearty dose of intellectual intelligent pop music that is a record for you and i think i think you'll really enjoy it okay well, and, I, um, I shall dig that out and encourage the, the listeners of the podcast to dig that out as well um two final yeah. questions before you go um so um the question i ask all my guests is you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life which one is it it can be jam style council or solo but you're only allowed one Ah, right. <laughs> only, only one. Um, that's really, really tough. But I would say that if I only ever had to listen to one Paul Weller song for the rest of my life, it would be Absolute Beginners by The Jam. Because when I first heard that, it completely blew me away. It was like, crikey, you know, you, you think you understand a band and then they do that. You know, you think you know where you are with somebody and then they do that. And that is... It, it's a song that first sort of like marked a sort of understanding that what Paul was doing was always going to be surprising and inspiring. And it's a fantastic song. And it's got Tales from the Riverbank on the B-side. So if you're allowing oh, me the seven inch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have that. Yeah. I'll have okay, that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, and then final question. Um, the purpose of the podcast, obviously, is to get to meet Paul ultimately and have that dream interview that I've I've never managed to secure in my, my career as a radio DJ. What questions should I ask? If there's one burning question that you'd like to know the answer to, what would it be? Or any advice when I'm interviewing him? Well, the, the advice I would give um, is the advice I would give if I had a time machine and the um, time space coordinates to Adam Buxton's infamous interview on Radio 2, where he went, Wella, 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 mm, tell me more. And <laughs> the advice I would be would be just don't do that. <laughs> Ask him whatever you like, but just don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. Andy, this has been an absolute joy and an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving up so much of your time to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. It's been a blast and, and good luck for the future. Good luck with everything kind of as we get through lockdown and, and whatever comes next. Yeah, thank you. Whatever whatever happens next, it'll be it'll be great. And, you know, when, when this whole lockdown caper is over and we've, we've successfully kicked COVID's bottom, I'm just imagining the, the scenes, the partying, the gigs there will be, the laughter and the fun. And it'll just be, it'll be wonderful. The best is yet to come there we are that's my, my my motto the best of everything is ahead of us that's you know a very sort of progressive and modernistic thing and i'm sure it's something that paul weller would approve of so there you are the best is yet to come you're leaving tears in my eyes man <laughs> bless you not, not a dry seat in the house yes exactly um, oh good well anyway i'm glad you enjoyed all that this has been a lot of fun thank you andy that was a total thrill such a smart guy and a blast from start to finish what a bunch of incredible stories as well in the next episode and i cannot quite believe that i am saying this i am joined by Nikki Weller. Yes, Paul Weller's sister on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. We chat family life, kicking off a career in music in the 70s, the Jam and Style Council fan clubs, and so much more. Get it into your ears by subscribing, and don't forget to leave us a review, give us a retweet, and help to spread the word. You can also get in touch with suggestions of guests or your own fan stories. It's Weller Fan Pod on Twitter, or Paul Weller Fan Pod on Instagram. We'll see you next week. Nikki Weller on the show next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.